are listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. I'm going to be reading today's teaching text. It comes from Galatians 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, I'm Chris. That was my husband. Because I know it's going to backfire on me. Oh my gosh, this whole morning, I'm, I'm a bit undone. It's hard for me to stand up here and try to get my thoughts together and share something with you now. I do have some things planned, don't worry. But between that worship and that communion, I honestly, I just want to lay on the ground and cry and worship and be in his presence. It's a great morning. So when Patrick told me I was speaking on Galatians 5, 6, that either circumcision, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision was anything but faith working itself through love, or faith working through love. (laughs) I was like, just to be honest, I tried to wiggle out of this one, (laughs) right? (laughs) I did. I tried to wiggle out of it. I'm like, I'm thinking I can find a better one than that, but... (laughs) The more I sat with it, the more amazed I am by this passage. And let me zoom the camera lens out a little bit. It's not really about circumcision, right? If we zoom it out a bit, Galatians right now, this this is Paul's first defense of the gospel. This is the first time in the the New Testament church where uh, there's a pack of Pharisees that were coming in and telling everybody here that they, they needed to... Um, do something else, that just faith in Christ wasn't enough. They, they needed to still do the Jewish law. They needed to get circumcised, follow these other laws, and then it would be okay. We can welcome you in. But, but you know, there's some, there's some caveats to this deal. And Paul's response in this moment is rather fierce. If you look at the, the whole letter of Galatians, he says some really appalling things to our sensibilities. He says things like, "Um, if you get circumcised, you will be severed from Christ. I mean, it's it's kind of severe, don't you think? I mean, can't we just agree to disagree on this one? He says things like, if you're going to do that, why don't you just go all the way and mutilate yourself? Otherwise, just take the whole thing off is really what he was saying, which is rather inappropriate on one level. And then on the other level, it's just so harsh. Of course, the Pharisees were just being Pharisees. This is what they do. Why? Why was Paul so adamant? Why was he so borderline violent on this topic. Why did he care so much? 
He actually said that these guys who are preaching a different gospel to you should be cursed. Hmm. I mean, what would happen today if somebody came into Oaks Church and preached to you something along the lines of like, you know what, if you want to be really close to Christ, you should pray for five hours a day, fast for 40 days a week. You should probably do this specific liturgy. Every, like they, they had hoops you had to jump through if you were really going to do this thing right. That's basically what these guys were saying. Would we have responded that fiercely to protect this gospel of ours? Would we have even seen and noticed that it was a different gospel that, he, that they were presenting? I, I, I'm not even sure I would. So in order to understand why Paul was so intense about this topic, why he responded so fiercely throughout this whole letter of Galatians, it's, it's important that we take a look at the man who said it, Right? This isn't just a theological moment. This is like, who, who is this person? Who is Paul? Who is this man who is trying to warn these people against following a different gospel with such passion that it sounded like he was like rescuing them from life or death, like they were about to jump off a cliff. He was, he was saving their lives. Like he, he was... <laughs> In my mind, I'm like, it's a little bit over the top, Paul. Can you just chill a bit? Like, they just have a different theology than we do. We can all make it work, right? (laughs) Anyway, so Paul, let's take a look at Paul. If you want to understand something, you got to look at the person who wrote it, right? If we want to understand our spouses, you got to try to understand the person who said it, the person who's saying these things. So looking at Paul is really important. Paul is arguably one of the most influential people of the Western world today. Anybody disagree with that one? Paul, at this point, he had truly lost all things when he, um, as we would say, gave his life to Christ, which we'll address that one later. But as he made this transition to believe that Jesus was the one they were looking for, it was such a dramatic shift that his people generally, um, he was exiled. He was kicked out of his community. He had worked his whole life at this career path that he was on, and he was doing really well. He was brilliant. He, the scholars believe he was raised as a prodigy. He was in the house of Pharisee parents. And so at this point, by, by making this decision that, that claimed that Jesus was the Messiah, he lost everything. He lost his community. He lost his career. He lost his family. He was exiled. He had lost all things. And so when Paul says in Philippians 3, he says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. He wasn't kidding. It wasn't a theory. He had lost all things. He had been beaten by whips, stoned, imprisoned multiple times. He had suffered unimaginable things. And so when he says, let Christ be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, he meant it. He had been on the verge of death multiple times. So when he says these things, he means it. It's, it's experiential. He had lived a life that said, yes, I, I have nearly died for him multiple times. So when I say, whether I live or die, let Christ be magnified, it's, it's experiential. He's not just standing up preaching a great sermon. It, it's experiential. He He lived it, right? 
when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. (laughs) He had been crucified with Christ. He was a dead man walking alive fully in Christ. He was possessed with the person of Christ. May I suggest that he was possessed by a gospel that's much more than the forgiveness of sins and getting a free ticket to heaven. Paul was not laying his life down for a spiritual relocation program. His gospel was much bigger than that. Can you use your imagination with me for a minute? I want to imagine the life of Paul. Can we, if you want to just even close your eyes, I can picture a Jewish village, the dirt and the ground and the homes and little Paul running around. His childhood didn't have Netflix, didn't have video games. So he imagined, most children in that culture imagined, and they heard the stories of their people, the stories of Yahweh, who parted the Red Sea, this massive sea. The waters parted in front of their eyes, and their people walked across on dry ground. They... they, told him the stories day after day, and they would have imagined, as a young boy, he would have imagined the story of Elijah on the mountaintop and the power of God coming down with such fierceness that it took up a pool of water with it. He would have sat in wonder, probably in those bedtime stories of Isaiah and his throne room encounter where Isaiah was taken up and he saw the seraphim. The creatures with six wings flying around, covering their eyes because the holiness was too much to look at as they proclaimed, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah was so freaked out at this encounter that he started screaming at the top of his lungs. This wasn't just a mellow, oh, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Isaiah was screaming, he was undone, he, was, he thought he was about to die because he had seen holiness that he was never allowed to see and live, and he starts screaming, I am unclean, woe is me. the Jewish culture of that day, they didn't just go to work and then have a religion that they practiced on the weekends. They, their entire culture, their, their entire people was centered around their, 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 the story of their people that was centered around their uh, devotion to Yahweh, but not just a devotion that was detached. They, they believed, they, they centered their entire way of life around the temple. That the presence of God, the creator of the universe, dwelt in their midst. And everything they did revolved around this temple. God in their midst, heaven on earth. 
the meeting place. The temple was the meeting place of heaven and earth. And they all had rhythms of life that centered this, this temple, this holiness of God, and only certain people were qualified to enter in close enough or else they would die because the holiness and the presence of God was, was beyond. They, they couldn't just approach God casually, right? So this is Paul. Paul knew the tremble. He knew the fear of the Lord. He, he was well acquainted in his every moment of every day that even though God dwelt in this temple made of hands, that he was holy and untouchable. So on that day, on that fateful day on the Damascus Road, when Paul is going to um, tear down these people who were threatening his way of life by saying that this person, this Jesus, was claiming to be God, you've got to be kidding me. How can God be in human flesh? Like, how appalling, how sacrilegious, how devastating to his belief system, to his entire family story, to his entire people, that God lived in this temple that was too holy for man to enter. How dare this man claim to be God in the flesh? He was out to tear this thing down because it was an offense to everything that they believed. And on that moment, he was knocked from his horse as the light shone all around him and he hears the voice. He hears the voice. Maybe it's the same voice that he imagined that Isaiah heard. Maybe it's a voice that he just knew. He knew this is, this is the voice. This is, this is Yahweh. What is happening to me? And then he hears him say, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Can you imagine the, the undoing of Paul in that moment? No wonder he was blind. I think he was so much more than blinded. Can you imagine? Like, not just, oh, you're the prophet we've been waiting for? No. <laughs> Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. He claimed to be the incarnate one. <laughs> and in this moment, Paul has got to be reconciling in his mind, like his whole world is coming down. His whole world is coming down. You mean God Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, the one who holds the universe in the spans of his hand, inside of human flesh, inside of our dirty bodies, and with dust on his feet. And then, do you think, the memories of all the stories that he heard about Jesus started coming back to him? Like, oh my gosh, he washed, he washed his disciples' feet. If this is Yahweh, if this is God in the flesh, what does that mean? Who is this Jesus? Like, did Paul go through just all this stuff in his head? <laughs> he dines with the distasteful. He defends the adulteress. This Yahweh that I've known in the temple defends an adulterous woman. 
He feeds the hungry. He loves the children. He cries over those in pain. What? He is both holy and majestic and incredibly kind and gentle. He interrupted a a religious ceremony to heal a man with a withered hand like Yahweh would do that. Who is this Jesus? How could I have had it so wrong? He held the leper in his arms. He made friends with the outcasts, the rejected, the diseased, the unclean. He pursued, pursued the detested. He held the rejected. He touched the untouchable. Those who were hated found love in this man. How offensive it must have been to Paul. (laughs) And yet, his world was colliding. His world was crumbling as he was facing the one that he had worshipped in this temple made with hands that was now in a human body. And it gets worse, or better, depending on how you want to look at it. At this moment... The revelation that Paul was having is that the, the holy of holies moved locations, right? Because Jesus is the temple. Jesus was the collision point between heaven and earth. So to say that the holy of holies that had been in the temple was now inside of a human being, huh. that was one thing. But on this Pentecost day, did he also remember what happened? That on this day, when all the disciples were up in this upper room praying, doing some trauma recovery, (laughs) waiting for the promise of this Holy Spirit, they had no idea what that was going to look like. And then the fire falls from heaven, just like it did for Elijah on the mountaintop, just like it did when Solomon's temple was inaugurated and nobody could stand and people could see it for miles and miles and miles. But this time the fire was over the head of humans. This is temple symbolism. So it's not just wild enough that this Jesus was now the holy of holies, that he was now the meeting place of heaven and earth in human form. But you are also saying that his followers are the same? You know, this is the revelation that Paul had as he went on in 1 Corinthians to say, don't you know that you are the temple of God? Do you know what that sentence means to him? He's not just saying, oh, your bodies are holy. Forget, remember that. Treat your bodies kind. This is like, this is everything to this Pharisee of Pharisees. To say that you are the temple of the living God walking this earth. Do we know what that means? As Gentiles, we really don't have a clue. We have no clue what it means to say that we are the temple. That we walk this earth filled as, like we are a part of the throne room of God walking this earth. This is the revelation that 
undid Paul on the Damascus road that caused him to lay his life down. This is the understanding, the beginning of the kingdom being manifested through the body of Christ, through the people of God who are somehow mysteriously carrying the presence of God into the world everywhere they go. This is what he was fighting against. He's like, how to say that they have to get circumcised means that they're still distant from him and they still need to do something to get to him. But they are the temple of God walking the earth. It was a false gospel that made it seem like they were still trying to accomplish something. They were still trying to get to him rather than bearing the revelation that they are carriers of Yahweh in the earth. This is the gospel that is worth dying for. This is not an end-of-life relocation program. This is, you are the temple of the living God walking this earth. Do we know what that means? On this Pentecost Sunday, do you know that Pentecost in the Hebrew calendar was actually the day that Moses received the law? He received the Ten Commandments. Do you think it was a mistake that the Holy Spirit poured out on mankind with the tongues of fire over their heads, symbolizing that you are now the temple? The temple is no longer a building made with human hands, but it is flesh and blood and DNA. That that happened on the same day that Moses received the law. There's a new kingdom in town, guys. And you are it. You are it. You are carriers. You are his temple. We are together his temple in the world. And if we had any idea, myself included, what that meant, what that means, what that would speak to our lives, how would we then live? How would that change us? That's why um, this false gospel of I have to do these things, I have to accomplish this, this religious thing that I do on a Sunday. That's why it's so offensive. It was that offensive to Paul that he's like, just mutilate yourself. If you're going to go that route, you're, you're, you're missing the whole point. Oh, if we would know that today, if we would feel that passionately today. Not, I'm not telling you to mutilate yourself. But <laughs> could we know why he felt so passionately about this? That's what I'm asking for all of us today. That's what I want him to do for us. Lord, will you remind us again? This is not about trying to get him to do anything for us. I don't need to stand up here and ask him to, although I wouldn't mind if he wanted to fall again. I would sure love to see those tongues of fire all over again. He did do it more than once, mind you. He fell once and he will continue to fall on his church but that doesn't mean that we don't already have him. We can spend the rest of our life focused in on what has he done already. Who am I in this world? Who am I carrying with me every step I walk out those doors? You are that temple. 
You are the meeting place of heaven and earth. We're not just asking God for signs and wonders to, to say, there it is, there's the kingdom, although that, that does happen. It, you, you are the meeting place of heaven and earth as the temple of the living God. I could stand up here and say that for the next eight hours, and we, I don't even think we'd begin to comprehend it. It's a magnificent gospel that we believe. It is a magnificent gospel. And I want to fight for the fullness of it. Are you with me? Can we fight for the fullness of the gospel? Can we remind ourselves of the, the, this magnificent gospel that we do stand in faith and believe? If only, if only we would remember, do this in remembrance of me. thinking about whether I want to tell you a story or if we should end here. Really? You want to hear a story? Tell a story. I like you guys. Um, so we, we work quite a bit with the underground church in the Middle East. It's our greatest privilege, our greatest joy. They are um, amazing humans. So we've got lots of stories. But this one is, is on, it's, honestly, it's one of the more simple stories, but it's one that rolls around in my head on a
Oh, if we would know that today, if we would feel that passionately today, not, I'm not telling you to mutilate yourself, but could we know why he felt so passionately about this? That's what I'm asking for all of us today. That's what I want him to do for us. Lord, will you remind us again? This is not about trying to get him to do anything for us. I don't need to stand up here and ask him to, although I wouldn't mind if he wanted to fall again. I would sure love to see those tongues of fire all over again. He did do it more than once, mind you. He fell once and he will continue to fall on his church. But that doesn't mean that we don't already have him. We can spend the rest of our life focused in on what has he done already. Who am I in this world? Who am I carrying with me every step I walk out those doors? You are that temple. You are the meeting place of heaven and earth. We're not just asking God for signs and wonders to to say, there it is, there's the kingdom, although that that does happen. you, You are the meeting place of heaven and earth as the temple of the living God. I could stand up here and say that for the next eight hours, and we I don't even think we'd begin to comprehend it. It's a magnificent gospel that we believe. It is a magnificent gospel. And I want to fight for the fullness of it. Are you with me? Can we fight for the fullness of the gospel? Can we remind ourselves that the the this magnificent gospel that we do stand in faith and believe. If only, if only we would remember, do this in remembrance of me. Thinking about whether I want to tell you a story or if we should end here. Really? You want to hear a story? Tell a story. I like you guys. Um, so we, we work quite a bit with the underground church in the Middle East. It's our greatest privilege, our greatest joy. They are um, amazing humans. So we've got lots of stories. But this one is, is on, it's, honestly, it's one of the more simple stories, but it's one that rolls around in my head on a regular basis because it, it somehow reminds me again of this gospel that is worth dying for. So this um, was in Jordan working with this church that had both an, an above-ground presentation. They were a sweet little Nazarene church um, pastor's wife that played the organ on a Sunday morning. They did everything well. And then on the, uh, on the rest of the week, they were like, I mean, they were hanging out in the camps and the refugee camps, like at the risk of their own lives. They were held at gunpoint. They, it was, I love these people. <laughs> anyway, so I was walking through their church and there was this man sitting in the corner. It was an empty room about the size of an apartment, mind you. And there's a man in the corner, facing the corner in a chair, sobbing, rocking back and forth with a Bible in his hands, just like sobbing. And uh, so I asked Zaki, my friend, 
no, tell me the story, because every person has a pretty dramatic story. And so he's like, yeah, he showed up a couple of months ago. Uh, there was a day where he was just pacing back and forth in front of the door to the church. And I just watched him pace back and forth because I knew he was trying to work up the courage to come in and I wasn't going to rescue him from that. So he just waited and let the man. It took several days of him pacing back and forth in front of the church building before he finally walked in. And he walked in barely able to speak. And he, um, and he said, I, I, uh, I was a very rich man. Sorry. We're all friends, right? I was a very rich man. Billions. When Arabics say they're rich, it's beyond anything we know. <laughs> Oil money man. He's a... Sorry, I'm not getting political, I promise. No, no, seriously, these guys, it's like multiple castles, harems, bows, plate, boats, planes, cars, like rich. He said, but this a man in white kept showing up in my house. I'd go to bed at night, and he would show up, and then we would sit and talk, and he'd tell me stories. And I love this man in white. I still just don't know who he is, and I, I think he told me to come here. And I've, I had to run. He had to escape in the middle of the night and run because he knew if he was going to follow the man in white, he was going to be killed by his family. So here he was, and he said, yeah, I found a little uh, this place that was like a hole in the ground that he was staying in and he was trimming shrubs for a living and, and just to get food in his mouth. And he's like, I just wanted to be nearby because I feel like you know this man in white and I need you to tell me, tell me about him. Because the things that he was telling me were, were too good to possibly be true. And so Zaki tried to give him a Bible and he said, oh no, I'm, I'm not worthy. I can't hold a Bible. I, I don't. Just one page. Can you tear out one page? That way, if I'm caught, you know, I won't be holding a Bible. So I said, fine. He tore out the first page of the Gospel of John. And, and then this man came back the next day with this tear-soaked page. He said, I need more. I need more. I need more. And then Zaki tore out the second page of the Bible, and, and he took it back. And then a week later, he's like, he's got these pages memorized, but he's, you can tell him they're, they're crumpled and cried over. And, and then he comes back for the third page and the fourth page, and, and Zaki said, seriously, can you just take this Bible? He said, no, I can't. I, don't, I, I can't be seen with this, but can I come here and hold the whole book in my hands? And I uh, said, yeah, this building is open. You can come here anytime. So this man, every single day, would come and pull this chair up in the corner, facing the wall, rocking back and forth, sobbing as he held this whole Bible in his hands because he understood the temple. He and his um, Jewish cousins, we all know how that relationship has affected the world. But he saw the temple. He saw how they related to the temple. He saw what they believed about the temple. And now this man in white was claiming that he was the temple and now that humans are the temple and he just couldn't reconcile it. So he held a Bible in his hand every day for like eight hours sobbing over the reality of this gospel that this man in white had been telling him about. And if he dared to believe it, it was going to be at the risk of his own life, but it was worth it. And the man got baptized and stayed in hiding for many months before he was killed. This gospel that, we, that brought us to this meeting this morning is no joke. 
Let's learn it well. Amen. Lindsay? Anybody? I'm done. Thanks, guys.